journey seems to be we were born in the separation and, and this is a really um, primitive planet in so many ways. There's just so much fear and judgment and negativity and it's been normalized. It's normalized in the religions and, and um, so it's a really interesting place to come because it's a planet of transformation. We could have incarnated on a planet of transcendence where you can become angelic without even trying because there isn't fear, judgment, and negativity and belief in tragedy. But transcendence is a little bit like going to a yoga camp, which is great, and namaste, and you know, you're doing your exercises and everybody loves you and it's just so wonderful, but it's more of a transcendent experience versus a transformational. Transformational is when we're right in the nitty gritty and having to figure it out ourself mm -hmm. and, and transform ourself. And, um, so on that journey, for me, it seemed to be my life's mission wasn't to do a book and a miniseries, but to just come into that self-realization where you can live without fear, without judgment, without negativity. And the last one to go is the belief in tragedy. It seems to be the hardest to let go. Namaste. Welcome to A Thousand Serious Moves with Amanda Holstein. This is an occasionally comedic, often poetic, typically mystical podcast about spirituality. Is that redundant to say it's mystical and about spirituality? Welcome. If you are new to this podcast, or if you're old to this podcast, welcome. We interrupt uh, your currently scheduled programming for some very special episodes. As you heard in the clip before this introduction, um, we have a new guest for today's episode and tomorrow's episode and maybe even a couple more episodes. I met this man named D David Sleeper out here in Marfa at Building 98. He is or was a mule trainer, a dog whisperer of sorts, a nature man who proudly proclaims that he's really not much of a reader and that he doesn't know anything. He says a lot of things that might seem far out there to some of you, and to some of you it might resonate well. He has a beautiful spirit, and he, you know, we sat down for this interview, it was really, as he likes to say, serendipity. So I guess there's really, I mean, I could say a lot about this conversation, um, that's broken up into a few different parts. So today's episode will be the first hour of our conversation. And then next week I'll put out another bonus episode. And we might even have a couple more episodes if we're so lucky. So without further ado or introduction, oh wait, no, just kidding. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, welcome. I did want to read, I mean, it's not really about me, but I kind of feel like I, it's always a good reminder that this podcast is named after the poem Tripping Over Joy by Hafez, who is a Sufi mystic. And if you're not familiar who the Sufi mystics are or were, 
uh, or are, truly are, uh, you know, within most major religions, there's uh, typically mystical branches of them. And so in Judaism, a.k.a. the Jews, we are familiar with perhaps the word Kabbalah. And for the early Christians, we have the Gnostics. And for the Islamics, as the, for the Islams, for the Muslims, that's the word, there's the Sufis. And there's many other branches, and I said I wasn't going to do an introduction, but, you know, here we are. And so this is a poem by Hafez for a poem that's called Tripping Over Joy, and that's what this podcast is named after. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God, and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. Loves you and it's just so wonderful, but it's more of a transcendent experience versus a transformational. Transformational is when we're right in the nitty gritty and having to figure it out ourselves, mm-hmm. and and transform ourselves, and um, so on that journey, for me, it seemed to be my life's mission wasn't to do a book, and a mini series, but to just come into that self-realization where you can live without fear, without judgment, without negativity. And the last one to go is the belief in tragedy. It seems to be the hardest to let go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's death and people get sad. We don't understand it very well. Yeah. You know, we don't understand it very well. So I, I just see the world as sort of, there's the separation and then there's the oneness. Mm-hmm. There's all this negativity, this judgment, this fear, this belief in tragedy, and then there's the opposite of that. So like when you're in the oneness, you don't even have to forgive because you didn't judge to start with. Mm-hmm. And part of that is being able to just, you know, and I have to qualify all this because I, I don't read. Um, that has not been my path at all. When I was young, I was not happy with my male conditioning and how I was relating to the world. Um, my sole purpose was to impress a very small percentage of humanity. They had to be the right um, sex, the right intelligence, the right athletic ability, the right attractiveness. Um, I, I lived for women uh, uh, that I could maybe hold hands with or something, you know? And, <laughs> oh, is that it? <laughs> and the rest of humanity didn't really matter so much. And I just saw that that was typical with lots of young men. And so I spent two years trying to think in a new way and break my conditioning. How so, old were you when you started to be like, you know what, maybe women aren't the answer to my problems? <laughs> no, it was more of changing myself. I mean, mm-hmm. no, there was no pressure on women. But um, so I, I, I thought I would force myself into not thinking in terms of sexual terms or intimacy or holding hands or romance for six months and just um, 
see what that would be like. And that turned out to be much of my life because then I would meet ladies and would become like good brother or sister and they would tell me things they wouldn't tell their husband or their girlfriends even because there was a, an honesty and a trust and I wasn't hustling and they could tell, you know, there wasn't, I wasn't after something. Mm-hmm. And so that was really profound. And at um, any rate, in that two-year period, there was no books, no movies, no television, no media whatsoever. Um, How old were you? Um, like 19, 20, and 21. Okay, so young. And then after that period, uh, I did some testing because I was in the counterculture movement. We were starting food co-ops and things like that, and you're hearing, well, this is bad for you, and this is good for you, and... And I don't really believe anything I read, and I wasn't reading then anyway. <laughs> this was before fake news. Yes, right. <laughs> and you're 71 now? 71 Just now. so the listeners yeah. know? Okay. Yeah, I'm an old part. Um, so I would test a f- food. I would fast for a day and a half, and then I would eat some meat, for example, or drink some coffee, or eat some sugar, or eat some sprouts, or eat some rice, whatever the food I was testing. But each day and a half fast there was one food I would meditate meditate for 20 minutes and then eat the food and look and then meditate 20 more minutes and see what happened by meditation and for me personally I think everybody's different but for me personally um, the the meat and the sugar didn't go well or, mm-hmm. the, or the coffee mm-hmm. so I, I haven't had coffee since then I avoid sodas and I had about a dozen beers when I was 21 and I moved on beyond that and and um, the way, the way I, so I had personal experience. So like that, say if you go to a restaurant and the, and the shrimp was bad, you don't want to eat shrimp for a while. Yeah. So I had this personal experience with, um, like say red meat. It just did not set good. Yeah. You know, and I loved red meat and bacon and all that kind of stuff. Steak. And yeah. yeah. And so that was easy to move on because I had my own experience. And, um, and then I, I just moved into a value system of, if it's good for me, I don't care how bad it tastes. If it's bad for me, I don't care how good it tastes. Oh. Like just like thoughts are things, you know, we are what we eat, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then that kind of charted a lot of my life. So I ended up being more self-aware, and then I could then see clearly my surroundings and not drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and then as things evolved further, I moved into my current um, philosophies which have to do that um, basically we're not horses. <laughs> okay. I have to explain that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm a horse. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, I became the largest mule rancher in 46 states, including Texas, training 40 mules at a time for many years. And the first thing you learn about mules, if you treat them all like a horse, you totally ruin them because mm-hmm. they're not a prey animal. A horse is a very unique prey animal. Um, in the wild, the wolf was their predator. And if a horse saw a wolf and it paused to think and care, like, what about my family? Let's, let's solve this puzzle. Let's, let's make wise decisions and deal with this wolf. Well, the wolf hunts in a pack, and the horse that would hesitate to think and care becomes wolf lunch, and they can't pass on those traits to their babies. So they run. So the horse that goes, wolf, I'm out of here. I don't care about thinking. I don't care about my family. I don't care where I'm going. I don't care about being sure-footed. I'm just out of here, and that's the one that can live and make babies. Uh-huh. And so in nature, everybody's evolving. Um, and evolution is the constant. To eat and not be eating, you've got to be constantly learning from your mistakes, learning from other critters' mistakes, and evolving. 
except for the horse. You've mm. got short ears, that's why they, you know, they evolved with the short ears, because they're not thinkers. Really? Um, and that makes them very, they're awesome, but it makes them very easy to control, because when you don't have a lot of consciousness, then pecking order becomes your whole world. So mm -hmm. when you put grain out for horses, they beat the crap out of each other. Yeah. Whoever wins greedily gobbles it down. Yeah. Because that's the world, they're prey animals and the pecking order. And so when the human comes in, well, let me go back to mules for a second. So when you put grain out for unruined mules, they call each other over. Hey, potluck. They love eating calmly muzzle to muzzle. And if there's any wrestling, it's like, hey, get some manners. We're sharing here. Mm. So a conscious animal wants to share a more unconscious impulsive animal wants to hoard mm. and then competition is everything so what happened i think throughout history the cause behind the cause of of human and canine dysfunction is that we've been horse trained in the separation versus trusted and and using ownership in the oneness and i'll explain how that works who who trained us who horse trained humans okay here we go so throughout history <clears throat> men because it was a patriarchal world. Uh oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Men were riding horses. They break in their spirit and they're learning how to control this prey animal. You got the whip and the spurs, etc. And you have to like the idea you break a horse's spirit and then it will you, it will conform and obey you. Uh -huh. You can take it into battle. You can plow the fields. You can herd the livestock. All this can happen because it's a horse brain. You can't do the same to a moose or an elk or a mule or a zebra. These guys are all much more in the oneness and bigger ears than that short-eared little horse, little prey animal. The only animal I've seen in nature, including the insect kingdom and the bird kingdom, that's just pure prey like a horse is a mouse. Uh. You can buy an automatic mouse trap that catches them alive. You can put some bait in there and you can catch a whole family of seven mice. Nobody's learning nothing. Boom, they just get caught in there. Caught, boom, boom. You can release them, reset it, wind it up, rebait it, catch the whole family all over again. They're just pure prey, kind of like that horse. And then, but there are no automatic rat traps because see, rats are in the one. Rats are smart, yeah. Yeah, when one rat gets caught, the rest of them go, hey cousin, you're in there eating dog food, but that's a trap. Yeah. We ain't stupid. We evolve for a living. We're not just impulsive like those mice. Uh. And so only one rat gets caught at a time because the rest of them learn. They evolve. And that's how everything in nature is, except kind of horse-trained dogs and humans mm. <laughs> who become, when we do the horse training, we, we teach obedience. And that's the real flaw with all this. Conform, obey or else, then shame and punishment. But then if you are a good horsey, mm. now here comes the bribe. And I will, I'll pull back my dictatorship and I'll be nice to you. You get and, stock options. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so like when we give treats to dogs, you know, to me that's like prostitution. Like what's your price, dog, to sell your soul? Oh, you hear that too? <laughs> <laughs> that's just for me. But, um, that becomes all normalized, where you, you, you bribe an animal or a child. You know, if, if you have a daughter and she's in high school and you say, you know, if you get really good grades, we'll buy you a pickup truck. Hell um, yeah. And then so the daughter's doing it for the truck, not because for themselves. Right. They're performing. So what the, what the horse training brings about is, is uh, codependency, big time, addiction, because of, of the whole breaking your spirit and bribing you. 
that sets us up for addiction. And then we like, I worked really hard this week, so I'm going to treat myself really good. Um, aren't you getting a little carried away? Yeah, but I worked hard. Yeah. I'm treating myself. That's what, that's what we do. Yeah. We have to have treats. We have to have treats. We have to go to do this and that. And then the codependency is because we've learned to really live for others and their opinion. You know, we were horse trained by our parents, and, and so the parents' authority opinion is really important, or else we rebel, and then we go the other way. Um, and, uh, but living for others becomes our whole gig. If someone likes us, well, well this is a great day. And if, if they're having a bad day, instead of loving them at their worst, we take it personally, especially if they have any attitude towards us. And now we're devastated. Or then maybe we want to go fix them or repair them or save them or something. And it mm-hmm. just doesn't work out very well. Mm-hmm. Versus working on ourself and seeing them as our master teacher. If they're able to push a button in us that makes this reaction, well, there's our codependency. So that they become our master teacher now. How can I live without buttons? And so when we pass that test and that in that class in the School of Hard Knocks, and that master teacher can no longer push our buttons, now we can move to the next class of self-awareness. And so how does one even become aware that that's what's going on? Like, that's wh- the trick. Where do you even start? You start by thinking before you act. Normally, we just kind of ricochet around. Uh-huh. We, you know, we see a dog, and the dog does something. We say, no, or a child. We're, the no word itself is the separation for me. That's so, totally what if a kid unnecessary. Is do, what if a kid is doing something like going to touch a hot stove? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good, good question. Uh-huh. So in my world, I speak the language of animals, which is ownership and trust. And then that also works really, really good with dogs and kids. And what happens is when you do that, they self-rehabilitate because you're trusting and you're having ownership. So you would start, like, say, with a, a dog... Like, I, I do this all the time. I meet people. They got goofy dogs. They wouldn't dare let off a leash. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, because the dog is just going to go out and do all impulsive dog business it possibly can do before it gets re-kidnapped. It's kind of a master-slave relationship. Not based on trust. It's based on obedience. But then I really can't trust you. I can't really let you off this leash because you're going to be weird. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be calling you. You'll be running all over. And, and so I have to keep you confined. That's right. a typical thing I kind of run across. And I'll tell them within 15 minutes, without even looking at the dog, your dog will self-rehabilitate. So you're anti-leash. I'm not necessarily that, but I'm anti-dictatorship. Mm. And anti is kind of a negative word anyway, but I'm, I'm pro-ownership <laughs> and trust. You're pro-freedom from the leash? Well, here's how it goes. <laughs> so when I meet these people, the first thing that I do is take out some jerky or something that's in my pocket. And... Um, I just set it on the ground, take it out of its sack, and the, there's the dog going, oh, food, I'm just total food-orientated. I, I relate to the world through my stomach, not my heart and mind. I'm, if I meet some lady on, walking down the sidewalk, I can tell what she had for breakfast. I can tell she's got chiclets in her purse. Maybe I can get a treat because I'm just food-orientated, food, food, food. Uh-huh. I'm an addict, you know? Yeah, where's that dope? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can spot it a mile away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... What I'm doing is I'm only looking at the dog, but I'm creating a fair realm of ownership and leadership and real pack leader. It's, um, we're creating fair realms all the time. If, I'm, if um, someone's scared of flying and they're on an airplane, they're actually creating a fair realm that people around them that are susceptible to fear 
it'll create a biophysical reaction in them, and then they'll create it and keep passing. You can spread it right around the airplane. You're saying that fear spreads? Yes. Same was discussed. This is Rochester University proved all this stuff that, like, if you're disgusted, you're creating a ferrum. People near you are susceptible to disgust. Your ferrum creates a biophysical reaction in them. I've never heard that word ferrome before. I'm not saying it right, I don't oh, think. Oh, like a pheromone? Yeah, I think Oh, right. it's like a secretion that yeah. like we don't consciously realize. Like It's yeah. like we pick a, up on it instinctually. Yeah, okay. It's, oh, okay. It's just like, you know, critters can smell fear on a person. Yeah, exactly. Well, they can also smell disgust. They can tell if they're going to have a heart attack or an epileptic, you know, mm-hmm. on and on. Um, they're so much more aware than we are if they're allowed to not, if we don't break their spirit and turn them into little prostitutes and, mm-hmm. and obedient little slaves that are kind of in a rebellious state a lot too, say. Mm. Um, and uh, so at any rate, I'm creating that, that energy field that means I own something, but not as a dictator. I'm in my highest form. I'm living without fear, judgment, and negativity. What you said about that same thing at the first there, mm-hmm. that's sort of, you're in that sort of world where you're just owning and you're trusting. Now, if I'm hovering right over that, I may have to block the dog a little bit, because, oh boy, food, and it's not even paying attention to me, but I may have to block it just a little bit and until it realizes it's not for them, and then they're starting to feel this energy, and then as soon as I can get back and trust, that's where the real magic happens. I got my hands out, empowering my hands, my hands, my palms are out, and this means I own something, I've got the energy field, and then I'll use the sound of ownership in the animal kingdom, which is mm-hmm. That's the universal sound. It means ownership. Now, people use that in domination training, the standard alpha dog thing. I'm your dictator. Uh-huh, and the dog whisperer. Right. Yeah. And so it's very confusing because it's, it's the sound of ownership that's used to dominate. So it's kind of schizophrenic making. It's, 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 you're not helping the... What, what I'm doing is helping the dog... Um, because I'm trusting. Let me take it a little further here. So now I'm three feet away. The further away I can get with this energy and my focus on something I own, the more powerful it is. Mm. And pretty soon I'm 25 feet away, and the people can't believe, why isn't the dog eating his jerky? Mm. This is incredible. Mm. And he didn't even look at the dog. Um, He's not interacting with the dog at all. He's just owning something, and he's trusting. Mm. And now the dog becomes trustworthy because I'm actually speaking its language, even though... This is totally contradicted to everything that's been taught so far. You become a thief. You steal because people are always stealing from you. We're always taking things away from dogs and kids. Yeah. We're stealing from them. They, like a little kid crawling around on the carpet and finds something, it owns it because no one else has owned it. There's no ownership going around the house. So a little kid is just owning everything. And then the parent or something comes along, a babysitter or whatever, and no, 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 and steals from them. Mm. And if they committed a crime, they turn to Godzilla and kind of bite their head off. You can't do that. You can't. You have to obey, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes normalized. Right. And then we even create deities as horse trainers, conform, obey, or else. Then right. religions don't evolve because everyone's performing for the deity versus evolving. Mm. And if anybody involves, it's the creator of the universe. Look at the universe. Mm. It's just all, everything's right. evolving except kind of us us horse-trained humans. We're the glitch. Whose fault is that? Well, I think because we have free will. And when we incarnate, we're on a, our mission. We're not here, I don't believe. And I don't know nothing, so 
but right. and I haven't. This isn't from anything I've read or anything like that. So I don't read, but just I try to to uh, create or even co-create um, a lack of definition for the great mystery instead of trying to define how the creator thinks and what sex it is and if it sits on a throne and what is it you know what does it want us to do and mm. you know it makes no sense to me that creation is just a place where some deity can can try to force people to worship them and obey them mm. that just sounds like medieval feudal stuff or something you know ancient right. ancient weird stuff um, I think that the creator is in every life form like in you, in that tree, in your in your dog, mm -hmm. et cetera, experiencing creation through the life forms. And a way to describe that is if um, you uh, take me, for example, like I'm celibate, I'm not hustling on ladies, and I haven't had really beer since I was 21. And some real hot lady walked in here right now and said, with a six-pack, just you know, looking as cute as can be, and said, hey, cowboy. Let's get busy. I'd say, no, thank you, ma'am. But if you divide me in a thousand pieces, three of those pieces would go over there and get busy and have that experience and get to learn from it. Why would you say no? Um, because that's not, for me, the act of being intimate is a very, is to, I've, I've allowed it to become a very sacred thing. I'd only want to play with that fire um, so to speak, after someone knew me a long time, I knew them a long time, and the relationship was based on trust versus lust or something, say. Mm. And because I've seen that that's the higher form. Um, plus, I'm very content by myself. You know, I like having a dog, but um, uh -huh. I'm, I'm not hunting. I don't feel codependently needy that I have to be completed through somebody else or somebody else's approval or needing affection and love and, and things like that. That's uh -huh. just me. Yeah. So I was just kind of describing how the creator might be because the creator can't be scared. It can't be codependent. It can't be, you know, dysfunctional. It can't be challenged very well at all unless it goes into it. its creation. That might be why creation is made so the creator can experience. Mm. So then lust is not wrong, but it's just an experience. It's just a step. A step. You know, and in, in, in it depends what we came for. So I think when we, when we incarnate, we have created a mission, and we're here to do that mission, and the divine will is to support us in that mission. And when we, we show up here, and then a religion tells us that, no, we're here to do the divine will, which is to obey some religion, and there's 2,400 variations and denominations on this planet, mm. which one has got it right? Why are they all so different? When they've got each one's got little different rules of how you appease the deity mm -hmm. and then get the deity's favor and et cetera, et cetera. It gets pretty interesting how, but see, our free will is allowed to, if we want to destroy the planet and learn by doing that, uh, we're just, there's, people have the sense that it's either God's fault or a devil's fault or something, but not my fault. Yeah, it's kind of our fault. <laughs> is it our fault? Is it a fault? No, in, fault is still of a negative thing. It's our experience opportunity. Uh -huh. And so just like if we had a lifetime and we made a lot of poor choices, and we do our life review afterwards and we see the movies of our life and there's no one standing over our shoulder judging us or anything, then um, 
we have, we're aware of our other lifetimes. We're aware of who we really are, and we have a different whole concept. And we come down here, we're kind of on a watered-down version, so we, we can experience more. Mm-hmm. And then depending on what we chose, um, that becomes our reality. You know, the, the parents we chose, the, the culture, the religions that we were born into. So you think we chose our path mm-hmm. before we got here? Yeah, like, we'll see. Let's see. This time I think I'll be a Hindu. Um, or maybe I'll be a Muslim. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be an atheist. It's all about learning. And then the creator supports that, that whole upstairs management. Who is the management. creator? What is the creator? Well, it's hard to say. Because mm-hmm. if you start defining it, then you're limiting it. Uh-huh. And if we think, you know, there's, what, they figured out there's billions and billions of galaxies out there and who knows how many universes even and, and how many inhabited planets and, and life could come on many forms, you know, who knows what, what um, uh, there could be a, a speck of dust down here, and that could be a whole universe. We don't know all these things. Right. We, the main things we do not know, and we pretend we know, that's the, kind of the first problem. Yeah, thinking that, like, believing what we see. Mm-hmm. That's why I say I don't know nothing, but these are just my seed thoughts, and I think I'm fixing the leaves, so I just want to get them out there because I don't think I'm going to get the book done. Yeah in the next couple of days. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's go back to the dog. We didn't quite finish that. So you've got this dog that wants that jerky, but now it realizes it doesn't belong to them. That changes everything when you have ownership and you're trusting. So now they're being trusted. Well, this is a whole new thing because normally they're not trusted. It's all about obedience. Mm-hmm. And, and it's about performing which creates the codependency, and that creates the neediness, and it creates the need for affection and attention outside yourself. And it helps create that codependency, that neediness, and affection for outside yourself in terms of a deity, too. The deity is not in you, it's outside you. It's not your soul that may be residing in every life form within you. Every cell mm-hmm. is where your soul is, as well as your brain and stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's why it's really not the best to, to abuse that too bad. It had a little respect for that aspect of the creator within us. Is that what it means when they say the body is a temple? I don't know. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do dogs have souls? Of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, trees. Everything that's uh, an, a life form. All life, I think. Allegedly. No. And I don't know. Perhaps. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But it just makes sense that, that if there's life, there's the creator that created it, experiencing creation. Mm-hmm. I think I told you about, there was an oak tree that I became very good friends with oh. in Houston. And I lived on the second floor of a fourplex. And one day I was like sitting at my desk looking out the window and it was like the tree communicated to me that consciousness permeates everything. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the most profound, like that was like a life changing mm-hmm. realization. And then in my own studies and practice, you know, a lot of my teachers will be like, talk to plants. If you see a, even an artwork, you know, or a picture of somebody, like say hello, mm-hmm. because like the universe is alive. Mm-hmm. There's a term that's called animism. Have you heard this term? Mm-mm you could probably infer what it means, which is that like everything is alive and has consciousness. You know, it really makes me even wonder about like inanimate objects too. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like 
where did these where do these things come from you know if not from the mind of the creator right so to speak which could even be a committee imagine right. as, as we evolve and we keep getting further and further into the oneness and we realize that we're co-creators you know our intent our thoughts actually are creation creating things mm. and if we are able to co-create with the divine now we really have something but the trick is that that divine power that comes from that that creative force really something super super important that doesn't happen that much and that that creative force has to be balanced with love and humility or it will corrupt Mm. and that the divine won't save us from our own corruption so even if somebody so the word goodwill Mm -hmm. my understanding is that it's doing the right thing for the right reason and so that would be the love and humility aspect is not just doing the right thing so if i'm thinking in terms of politics and we don't have to go into depth about (laughs) it but you know that okay uh, we want public programs, right, you know, to help people. Mm-hmm. But it's like you're saying that the motivation behind that is what matters more than just the good deed itself. Right. Um, when we're codependent and needy, we want to save and repair and fix others. And the higher form would be to, to um, help them find ownership and, and, and give abilities, Teach a person to fish. But that kind of concept. Mm. And um, just like with this pandemic that's going on, you know, big farmers not setting up little clinics in all the little towns. And here's some vitamins, here's some treatments, here's some things that don't cost a lot of money. Here's ways to get your immune system strong because your immune system is really the most important thing. You, you have to fight off any kind of a problem. So get healthy. Right. You know, um, and um, But then they'd have to go against, you know, all the non-organic corporations you know the monsanto the whole the sugar industry the on and on and on and on and they're all kind of bedfellows there you know so that's the last thing that's going to happen so you have a medical profession that really isn't is like at war with the immune system which is like most of big religion is at war with consciousness Mm. that's why the pharisees killed jesus i think because Jesus was the opposite of their definition of deity. Mm. Their definition of deity, right from the get-go, um, you know, you look at Genesis, did, did that definition of deity say to Adam and Eve, go evolve, experience, experience creation, you know? Just keep evolving, enjoy, enjoy. This is um, it's wonderful. He just said, no, don't eat that knowledge thing. Mm. And they did it anyway. And he said, okay, out of here. It's almost like, you know, well, there's many layers to that story, but it's almost like when you tell someone to not do something, then they're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, because they're going to rebel against that dictatorship. Right. Um, Rather than explaining what it's all about or, you know, why, or, you know, having some ownership and some trust. This is dictation. So the next thing we see in that particular definition of deity in that story you know, and every religion's got kind of a different one a little bit, and every planet, every solar system, every galaxy, there's going to be all kinds of creation stories in the primitive, you know. It's just the nature of the game, trying to define the creator of the universe. Um, it might be that they're not all correct. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> so the next thing we see is um, the deity needs a sacrifice. To, so we have to, you know, perform for them. And so Cain's got his veggies, mm-hmm. and then... 
Abel makes some blood. You know, he kills something for the deity. Well, the deity likes the blood and not the veggies, and Cain gets jealous and kills Abel. This is how dysfunctional it is right off the bat, according to this story. Mm. They're normalizing this dysfunction. They're normalizing you have to perform for the deity or else, you know, it won't be good. You don't want to piss off the deity, basically. Mm. So in the back then, you know, hell wasn't created yet and all that kind of thing, and, and there still was a concept of reincarnation within the Jewish religion. Right. And um, so we, get, we move along through the years, and now here's the temple in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. And um, he overturns the money changers because the whole thing's all about this sacrifice deal. Buy a dove, buy a goat, buy a lamb, buy a calf, buy a bull if you got enough money, and burn it and bleed it and kill it because that'll make God happy and he will bless you. That was normalized. That became the religion. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And then so when people are treated that way um, as, you know, horse trained, basically, their spirit is broke and they have to perform for somebody else, in this case, a deity or a, a Pharisee or whatever. Totally. I it's mean, it's all about performing, performing as codependent and fear based. And no, don't be thinking for yourself. You'll get in trouble, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So they had to kill Jesus because he was the opposite of all that. And he made his statement, too, you know, this whole money-changing sacrifice thing is, is, is not so good, you know? Yeah. And um, he may have lost it that day and moved into the separation in terms of his actions. <laughs> mm. It might have been a little test for him that he didn't pass so good. Because he got angry? Yeah, yeah. But who knows? I mean, is anger wrong? You know what I mean? Like If, if we have, get angry and didn't learn from it? It's, it's, it's really all about learning and evolving. So we need to do things so we can learn from them. Right. If, we just, if there was just a manual that said, here's how you got to be. Like, don't, don't define the creator of the universe. Don't create a religion. Well, those are instructions again. We have to figure this stuff out on our own. Right, and like the complexity of wisdom, right? Because I'm a wisdom seeker. Mm -hmm. So like the difference between knowledge and wisdom is knowledge is like, um, a set of associations and then drawing a conclusion based on that versus, you know, thinking about King Solomon, so to speak, you know, this representational figure is that, you know, when the two women came to him with the baby, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then the way that he handled the situation and if my listeners don't, aren't familiar, it was like there was two, there were two women, one woman had a baby and then the other woman, her son had died, and so she was claiming that this baby, this other woman's baby was hers. And so they went to King Solomon, and he said, well, let's just cut the baby in half, and then, you know, you can split it. And then the true mother of the child was like, no, 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 just give it to her. Like, I'd rather the mm -hmm. child survive, right. Right? right? So, like, that's the complexity of wisdom, is that it's not just, like, a logical kind of decision. It's mm -hmm. that... It's you can't even really describe what it is because it's like to say that something is wrong versus right is really a narrow view because were it not for my experiences, I wouldn't be able to learn from them and to grow and evolve, as you say, you know, in my consciousness and in my awareness. 
and, you know, through trial and error to a certain extent. I mean, wisdom, you don't have to learn from hard lessons. You know, you can learn from other people. You know, ideally, <laughs> that's kind of the scenario. <laughs> um, but even if we do w make what are perceived like mistakes, like there's that word redemption and grace comes into play because my current assumption and belief is that the universe is inherently good. Mm -hmm. We hope so. I think so. I think if we it's been my experience. If we actually we use our free will to create it in a in a highest form we can conceive of and still don't hang on to any definitions, then the creator within us and us in conjunction are making that be good. With creation we can that free will, just like destroying this planet, um, if we don't learn, if we don't evolve, then we devolve and we make a big mess. But that's allowed because at some level it's all learned from. Mm. Just whether it's, let's just say someone kind of makes a bunch of poor choices in their own life, and it's just one lifetime, but then learning happens. Learning is never lost. When they do their lifetime review, they get to, they get to learn. They get to see themselves clearly. It's much better if we can do it here. So imagine like if you're, you're climbing on a mountain, you're, you know, and it's, it's really hard to climb, and you could slip and fall, and you could die, or maybe the ropes will catch you, or, um, and you, you can't figure out what to do next. If you've got a bunch of people down below going, put your foot, put hand over here, hip, hip, you know, that's like the religion telling you how to be. And well, then you don't really learn how to climb. You just learn how to follow their orders. You say, don't lie just because don't lie. But you really need to be in that spot where you can't figure out what to do next. And then you evolve and now all of a sudden you figure it out. You're solving your own puzzles. Mm. You're having a relationship then with the rock. The rock becomes your master teacher. And you tell those people down there, you need to be quiet. Yeah, you're messing me up. Because I need to learn to climb, not just follow your instruction. Right. If I follow your instructions, I don't really learn to climb. One time I went camping with an ex-boyfriend and we were walking along a river and walking on stones and he was trying to help me and then i just caught myself saying like you're caught you're 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 messing me up you know or some version of that it was like i actually am doing better without you like kind of hovering over me to make sure i don't fall like i actually kind of know what i'm doing mm-hmm mm -hmm. so let me pick up a couple things that, that i kind of left hanging so on this dog thing um so the dog has learned that I own things. I've trusted, the dog's becoming trustworthy. The next step, once they become trustworthy, is consciousness. And the next step past that, once they become conscious, is they have their own morality. They wouldn't steal my stuff, not because they'd get in trouble, not because they're fear-based, not because they're codependently performing for somebody else, because I am no longer a thief. I respect somebody else's stuff. Right. So the horse training makes all that other goofy stuff, and then therefore the world as we see it. And then when you do the opposite, now you're imprinting morality. So the next step I do with the dog, and people can't believe it because now the dog is calm. It's looking at me. It's kind of attracted me like a magnet. It's in my mind because my mind is something it wants to be in. The mind of the humans, they don't want to be in their mind unless there's a treat involved. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's addiction. Like, I'm looking in your mind to see if I can get a treat out of this. Yeah. But since a human's not evolving, there's not much, in, I'm speaking in general terms, of course, but there's not much impetus to try to be in the mind of a human that's kind of impulsive and doesn't think before they act. Mm. And it's just doing how they were horse trained. 
they're not, you know, changing the paradigm. They're using words like sit and know and, and um, so in my world, I didn't call a dog. It's a dog's job to watch me and know what I'm thinking about leaving because I will leave them. Mm-hmm. That's like a real, if in a real pack, if a, pup wa- a wolf pup wanders away from the pack, um, the pack takes off for some reason. They don't call that dog, that wolf. So as that wolf is, pup is wandering around, it's constantly in the mind of the pack and the pack leader. Because if they see something or think something, telepathically they're right there. Mm. You know how your dog can tell if you come home from work early or something? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, there's a telepathic connection. So yeah. when we're really in the oneness, now that telepathic connection all makes sense to the dog. When we're in the separation, then the dog becomes as schizophrenic as we are. Yeah. Yeah, my dog, he... Uh... You know, it's funny, he, uh, obviously he's blind and deaf, right? So only whenever I'm like in the kitchen or gone, I'll leave this door open sometimes. And he's always like sitting right at the entry, but he never, he never does it when I'm like here. Mm-hmm. He only does it when I'm like in the other area or mm-hmm. like went to the store real quick. It's like that he's like, he like knows that I'm gone, mm-hmm. even though he can't see me, Right. you know? And being blind, then he uses those other faculties even more. Oh, yeah. They become stronger. Oh, you see how he just, like, gets around. Yeah, he's, I know. He's, he's amazing. So, he's awesome. He's, he's very aware, very self-aware. Uh-huh. He's, so he's moving into that oneness because he went blind. He's, he's, he can't stay in the separation. He'd be bumping into things, and he'd have a miserable life. Mm-hmm. He's doing quite well. That's why he's one of my greatest teachers. Because mm-hmm. when he went, he started to get those cataracts when he was, like, three years old. I was so devastated you know and then i'm like he's gonna be mis projecting right mm-hmm. like he's gonna be miserable throughout his life and then to be able to just observe him adapt and he played fetch until like a year ago you know like he would smell it out like mm-hmm. he's always happy you know and so it's like through me observing him has taught me a lot about detachment and being because to him this is just the way that life is Mm -hmm. like there's already that place of acceptance he's not like a like that word tragedy right like to him he doesn't really have a concept of that word Mm, good yeah yeah so in a way he's sort of more evolved Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some people yes (laughs) perhaps who knows and so anyway back to that dog thing i do want to finish that for um so i don't leave people kind of hanging what what next what next (laughs) so now I could go 50 feet away. Now, normally the dog still has to be on a leash because we haven't done the next part yet. And if the dog's off leash, who knows what it'll do. But the leash is, the dog's got plenty of room to get the food, you know. And, uh, but if, if the people can let the dog off the leash, then as I go 50 feet away and act indifferent, I still own that stuff and the dog is still not stealing and it's not on a leash. And then it'll want to come with me and leave the food because I'm a real pack leader. You know, it wants to follow me. Mm. And the people are just like, what's going on here? But normally the dog can't be trusted off leash yet. Um, That's the more typical thing I find. And then so I'll say, okay, now we're ready for the next step. Because here's this dog has already shifted and changed. Recognizing ownership, it's being trusted, it's becoming trustworthy, it's becoming conscious. This all makes sense. So now I tell the people, go over and take the leash off the dog but hang on to the collar. And usually it's a family, you know, the kids and spouses. And and I said, what we're going to do... As you release the dog, we're going to run, and then it'll follow us. If you release the dog, it's going to run off on its own, and then you're going to start trying to call it and demand that it come back here. 
Yeah. And and all your energy is actually going to be pushing it away to do all the impulsive dog mm -hmm. business it can do before it gets re-kidnapped. Mm -hmm. We don't realize that our very act of calling, especially when we're aggressive and you know pushing forward, is just repelling them because we're just we're in that separation. It's like whenever you want a guy to text you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It is so similar. It's like you needing to kind of like have a loose grip or an open hand about these type of scenarios because when when you start to worry and you get in a place of fear, then it's almost like they can sense it and mm -hmm. it like it's like repels them. Yeah, thoughts are things. Any thought you have about somebody else. Like say if you have somebody you're having a real hard time with, like an enemy kind of and you're thinking about them, well, you've just made a highway, interstate State Highway, between those energies. Yeah. So now you've got them right there. Yeah. The energy yeah, right it's there. Like when you just, yeah, it's like yeah. then you can't stop thinking about how much you and, don't like that person. And you have no idea that you're just <laughs> co-creating in a sense. Yeah. As a creator, your thoughts are things, and you're making this kind of worse. And that's why, you know, some people who have, you know, a certain type of energy about them that they just – attract repulsion like they like attract people not liking them mm -hmm. and it just like and then it's like co-creating mm -hmm. this like hostile environment and so it really takes a certain level of awareness and consciousness to be able to separate from that like there's one person in a certain group that i'm part of that when i first met her i was like Ooh, I don't like her. There's just, I could feel her energy that was like, cause she would come into the meetings and she'd be like, people are always fighting. And it's like, it's funny how every time you come in, you always talk about how chaotic the group is. But when you're not here, where everything is actually pretty <laughs> copacetic. Mm -hmm. And so it, that was, you know, she was a master teacher for me in that way, mm -hmm. not consciously, but I was able to see like, man, why am I thinking about how much I don't like this person? Like, I need to counteract that. I need to release it, you know, and there's a lot of different ways to do that, right? Prayer, meditation, mm -hmm. praying for the other person. Uh, whenever she would come into the meeting, I would say, hey, how are you? Mm -hmm. I would say, thanks for sharing. I love you, mm -hmm. you know, to mm -hmm. kind of like sure. diffuse that hatred. Mm -hmm. Nothing with good, like all that stuff. Like say, say I was in a point in my life where I'm actually open to, you know, having a mate, mm -hmm. um, and really not a detour, not a recreational thing, but an actual soulmate kind of thing. So I would have two choices, one to go hunting uh -huh. <laughs> or work on myself mm. with the idea that when I've got my, and same with a dog, like when Tejona died, that's a dog I had recently, um, <clears throat> and I'm looking for another dog, I've learned that the way I do that is I work on myself and watch for the serendipity. If I'm out hunting a dog, I'm liable to find one that's not exactly the, the what I'm looking for, say, uh -huh. uh, because I tried to make it happen. Right. And this is how I, that's kind of, anyway, back to the dog. So now we, they take the dog off the leash, they hang on the collar, and then we take off running. So the dog naturally wants to follow us. We're not calling it. And when it catches up, I tell everybody, ignore it. Let it reward itself for finding the pack. We're acting like a pack now. And the dog's probably never been in a pack before. I mean, a human kind of. And um, so when it catches up to us, then we walk slower. And, and we're, we're walking around like wolves. We're just paying attention. We're being very conscious. Um, and if we, if we see something, like a cat or whatever, 
I say the word hello, which means I own it. And I won't be able to get too much into all those kinds of things here today, but I have three words I use in, in dog self-rehabilitation. Hello, careful, and thank you. I'm a steward of consciousness. I'm a mentor. I'm a resource. I'm not a dictator. I'm not a dog trainer. I'm, I'm not trying to break their spirit and make mm. obedience. And like just making a dog sit, to me, that's like, slave, sit. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, hello. Sit. <laughs> <laughs> it's just contradictive towards this sort of dictator thing. If the dog wants to sit, let it sit. If it doesn't, I mean, it just, but it, it's amazing how, and people would say, like, dogs I work with, wow, they're so well-behaved. And I said, no, it's, they're not well-trained. No, they're well-mannered because they're conscious. Mm. And they want a relationship because I'm speaking their language and it makes sense. And now they're evolving and now the world makes more sense. It's not a well-trained or well-behaved dog or child at all. It's in They're harmony. not performing for somebody else. This yeah. is who they are. Mm. So we do this running around as a pack, <clears throat> and then we're, we're noticing things. We're saying hello and identifying them, so we're being a resource. The dog doesn't know what hello means yet. That has, come, has to come later. But, um, uh, and then... Uh, at some point, the dog will take off on its own. Maybe it sees a squirrel or something, or you know, a rabbit, and off it goes. Well, we just take off in the other direction. As it's going, it's going, I want to chase this rabbit, but I realize my pack is probably leaving me. Mm. What are my choices here, see? I have choices now. Who am I going to be? And that's the most important question any dog or kid can ever ask or person, is I, have, I can see I have choices. Who am I going to be? Do I want to chase the rabbit, or do I want to be with my pack? And so if they decide the rabbit, when they turn around, their pack is gone, which is really good. You don't want to panic like, whoa, I really blew it. Mm. When they hunt you down, you could care less. It's their job to find you. If you go, oh, good doggy, you found us, then you're back to performing. Mm. So very quickly, in that 15-minute period, now the dog is trusted off leash. It's trusted with my stuff. And then I can also own, I can label the, the rabbit it wanted to chase, and I can own the rabbit because my hands have been empowered. And my, and but not at the dog. I'm I'm owning the rabbit, and then I'm backing up. And the backing up is where all the power comes because the backing up means I'm trusting. And so what I have my clients do is I give them a sack of jerky or. Actually, you can buy this little um, baby sausages kind of thing that are kind of dried. They don't stink too bad or anything, mm-hmm. and and they're that way. They're long. If the dog grabs it, you might be able to get it back. Um, versus jerky might just disappear if they, if they actually stole something. Um, but at any rate, all you got to do then is when you want to own something, like say you go to a hotel and your, your dog's off leash and just following with you, and there's other dogs there maybe, and the dog starts owning the place. You just take that little sack out of your pocket, throw it on the ground, you've got your hands out, and you back up and trust. And just like that, the dog is, oh, you own the hotel, okay. I'm with you, pack leader, but not out of fear, not out of obedience, Mm -hmm. none of that sort of thing. It's because it's who they are, because you are a steward of consciousness, and they want to be more and more conscious to be able to survive as that predator, not as a prey animal. Mm -hmm. The horse training is all about making us prey to a dictator. And so the way out for the little girls, little boys, is when they're horse trained as prey, conform, obey, or else, then here's your bribe, is to become a conqueror and conquer other boys, conquer the little girls, conquer the doggies, conquer the kids. Mm. Become a conqueror. 
And so now you're in that, like that horse, remember I talked about the horses fighting over everything? Mm -hmm. They've become horses mm. where they don't share so well. Right, so competitive. And they, when they get something, they greedily gobble it down. Yeah. They haven't become mules, unruined mules. Yeah. Or zebras or anything else. They're horses. Yeah. And then the little girl's way out of it is not to become a conqueror normally, but to become bait for a conqueror. Mm. And so their whole thing is to try to be attractive and get a good conqueror, and then that, that status that comes with it, et cetera. I'm just speaking in general terms. Of course. But that's where that horse training leads. And then that keeps men at the patriarchal top, and, um, and no one's doing ownership and trust. And then we have all this other stuff that's normalized, like through the religion, that God himself is a horse trainer. Conform, obey, or else I will be mad. And I will get you. Mm. So back to Jesus. So the Pharisees have to kill him because he's the opposite of their deity's definition. I mean, it's just, he's the enemy. Mm -hmm. Because what happens in religion, when, it, when we create religions and there's doc, dogmas and doctrines, they become cemented. Right. They become static. They stop evolving. So the rest of creation's evolving, but a religion doesn't. Mm. And... Of the 2,400 variations on this planet, that's pretty much typical, almost, you know, most of them. They get stuck in their doctrine and dogma and they can't evolve. Right. And so they become at war with consciousness and progress and change. Even the Buddhists? Yes. Just look at all the, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't can't say that authoritatively, but, but in sense of, look at all the things they invent that are, are religious orientated. So my thought is you can look at any religion and you're looking for two things. You look at their scriptures and their holy books, et cetera, and you go and say, well, I'm looking for two things. The, the I'm looking for signs of the separation. I'm looking for signs of the oneness. And when you do that, you're going to see a lot of separation. And here and there, you're going to see something like love your neighbors yourself. Right, yeah. They go, oneness, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Be good to those that hate you. Ding, ding. <laughs> right, exactly. Eye for an eye. Uh-uh. Separation. Because mm. this world is like a world of apparent separation. Ten Commandments. Sounds like a good idea, but it's dictatorship, it's separation, it's performing to appease a deity. Yeah. So when Jesus was different than that, he represented consciousness, Pharisees got to kill him. That's their job, to protect no evolution protect the set you know and look at the jewish people today they got all kinds of commandments now if, you, if they're real orthodox you know there's like several hundred they can't open a refrigerator on the sabbath because make god mad right you know etc cetera, etc cetera. it's just horse training horse training horse training well and what it is is there's reasons for those things mm -hmm. so like in terms of ritual purity right mm -hmm. so like but what becomes like for a reason, like don't eat pork, mm -hmm. gets turned into a dogma because we're not told just like don't lie. We're not told like don't lie because if you lie, people aren't going to trust you and it's going to create fragmentation and then you'll get there will be consequences to that. Mm -hmm. And so it's like living in harmony is to live in truth. But instead, we're just told 
don't lie. Mm -hmm. So like what I've heard is, you know, according to a story is that when Moses first went up to the mountain, that God gave Moses the Kabbalah. And then whenever he came down, the people were worshiping the golden calf. And so he broke those stones because the people weren't ready. And so he went back up and then God was like, let me give you a more simple <laughs> version. I mean, let me give you a basic thing, right? Uh, and so even this basic thing that like, you know, the Ten Commandments aren't wrong. It's not, no, you no, know, uh, it's, it's just that we're told, like you say, just don't do these things right. and we're not going to tell you why. Like, if there's different, if they're gifts versus commandments, mm. you know, gifts to know yourself better and help you make wise decisions versus commandments that are, if they're broken, you're going to get some anger or something. So mm -hmm. that's a, that's the shift and change. There. Yeah. Um, so at any rate, <clears throat> so the Pharisees got to kill Jesus and they accomplish this. They get the Romans involved. And they stir up the crowds, you know, at the Pontius Pilate thing, all these nice, good Jewish people are over there going, crucify him, crucify him. You know, religion can stir up crowds. Look at the resurrection at the Capitol. Mm. That's kind of really religious-based, you know, stirring up the crowd to stop consciousness or change or progress or whatever. It's the same old stuff. And, um, and people get caught up in it and become it. Um, and then, and uh, so they kill Jesus... And then there's, and this is probably one of the couple most important things I'll say here today, besides the ownership and trust thing with critters Let and the kids. Let me make sure it's still recording. Okay, so we're going to hit pause there in this conversation. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for the next episode of my interview with David Sleeper, David Sleeper, David Sleeper, out here in far west marfa texas if you'd like to support this podcast consider becoming a patron at patreon.com atsm for a thousand serious moves you can also purchase art from my etsy shop to support this work by going to etsy.com shop slash hanael777 that's h-a-n-a-e-l 777 and for the month of August, you can also get 15% off for a thousand serious moves subscribers for your orders at the Etsy shop with the promo code ATSM15. That's ATSM15. The link will be posted in the show notes. Also, make sure to subscribe again if you haven't and listen to previous episodes. Um, the last season, I went into all 150 psalms and broke down each one for each of their magical and useful purposes, such as Psalm 23 to receive an answer in a dream, or Psalm 51 as part of the seven peninsula psalms to um, seek, let's call, spiritual cleansing. Or what else? Psalm 65 is a great one for bringing on good fortune and favor. So check out all those previous episodes, subscribe and share with your friends, and tune in next week for the continuation of this interview with David Sleeper from Marfa, Texas. <laughs>